Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today is a real legend her name is sylvia massey and she's undoubtedly one of the most famous names in the audio engineering world her resume includes work with acts such as tool Johnny Cash, System of a Down, Smashing Pumpkins, Fuji's, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and a ton more. I mean, it's pretty safe to say that more music listeners have heard her work than have not. And not only is she incredible, but she's known for her super, super unique take on production that we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, I introduce you Sylvia Massey. All right. Well, Sylvia Massey, welcome to the URM podcast. Hey there. Hey there. So are you locked up right now? Locked up. You mean in in, uh, lockdown, COVID lockdown? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. But then I'm kind of a house cat anyway, so it works out for me. Yeah. it's. I mean, right now I'm talking to you from a hotel because the internet at my place went down. But one thing that I kind of feel like is pretty common in the audio community is that People's lives haven't changed all that much because they don't normally go anywhere anyways. We rarely go outside. (laughs) I did go for a drive yesterday, though. It was was nice, you know, good weather. How often have you done that? I've done it like once a month, once a week. (laughs) Maybe once a week, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, have you been staying busy, though? Absolutely busy, yeah. Uh, but uh, not my typical working routine, actually. It's been a lot of mixing and no tracking. So typically I would be doing projects. I would also be traveling. This time last year I was in Europe and I would be in Australia right now if it wasn't for the pandemic. So, But, you know, I have done so much traveling, I actually don't mind being at home for a while. How much travel per year do you normally do? Like, how many months do you, would you say that you s- stay away from home? Six months out of the year, at least. So it's a serious amount. Yeah, it is. Do you enjoy it? I do enjoy it. Yeah, I travel a lot to Europe and to uh, South America and um, Eurasia. Um, so yeah, it's it's I'm blessed with the with the work I get to do. I mean, 
it's not even work. It's just, it's a joy. I feel like travel for work is the, is the dream. Um, however, I will say that no matter how awesome it is, it still takes uh, like a physical toll. It's still exhausting. So having, because I travel every single month for work. So this has been my first break in five years and, and I do miss it. So I actually feel more at home in this hotel room that's a mile down the street from my house than in my house. But I was ready for a break, a serious break. Yeah, me too. It, it, this uh, break has given me an opportunity to do some serious artwork too, because typically I, if I want to do some painting, I'll actually purchase some brushes and paints and little canvases in, in the hotel room wherever I'm staying. And, uh, and I'll do some painting while I'm on the road or in sessions even. Um, but here at home, I've, I have huge giant canvases that I'm working on right now. And it's, it's really fun. I never get to do this, so I'm, uh, I'm real glad about the, the break, too. When you're painting on the road, do you feel like you're at all limited just because of the amount of room that you can have in a hotel room or just because of the schedule of having to work with a band and hit a deadline? Well, you know what? That's exactly it. If I'm painting, I have, uh, I'll have i usually bring the, the canvas down to the session, and then there's a time limit on, on how much... Uh, time I can put on that canvas because in essence I'm channeling a lot of the music into the the artwork so when the when we're done with the music part of it it's really hard to complete that painting if it's not completed at the end of the session so I, I scramble to finish uh, finish a, 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 a canvas um, before the end of the session deadline so when you say that you're channeling it are you seeing it, like seeing the music visually, or is it more of a feeling thing? It's really a feeling thing. I, I usually, when I'm doing painting during a session, my mind is actually really concentrating on the, the task at hand, which is uh, producing the artist. And so the painting is just an idle thing that I'm doing with my hands. While you're recording? Yeah. Oh, Interesting. If I have an engineer, I'll be shouting things out to the engineer and I'll be communicating with the artist uh, while keeping my hands busy um, with a paintbrush. And it, it, it works for me. I think I, I have a, a obsessive-compulsive disorder in, in a sense that my hands need to keep busy. So, you know, painting keeps me from eating <laughs> or doing other bad habits. <laughs> Does it help you focus? Oh yeah, it does. And sometimes the the canvases really turn out spectacular. Um, and then sometimes they're not that interesting. And sometimes they don't get finished. So it's really a crapshoot when it when I do the painting on the road. And it's really not a focus. It's not the actual focus of what I'm doing. But now that I'm at home with uh, you know, with the COVID situation. I really, really am concentrating on the artwork. So you're saying that now the actual focus is the art. When you're doing the artwork, when you're creating it in the session, what it sounds like to me is that you're saying that whether it gets finished or not isn't the point. It's more that it's helping you uh, do whatever you need to do for the for the audio, for the music, and somehow it helps your mind get to that place it needs to go to. But now that you're not tracking. That's, uh, yeah, it really does help me focus uh, and it keeps my uh, hands busy. So you said that like 
it keeps you from, I guess, straying. Do you think that if you weren't doing that, that you would be less, it would just not saying that you wouldn't put out a great record or something, but do you feel like you might not be at what you feel is your best or most uh, in it? Yeah, I think uh, because it helps me, it's like a, um, well, if I was smoking and I quit smoking, I would be smoking, mm-hmm. I'd be chain smoking during a session just because I'm so, yeah. it's such an intense time that I, I'm really running on all cylinders and, and everything is firing. Um, and so I would be chain smoking or <laughs> be eating chips <laughs> or something and just like, uh, but this way with a paintbrush, I, I keep busy. And I, I don't have those self-destructive tendencies. So just out of curiosity, now that you're working on a painting for the sake of the painting, are you having to do anything to kind of like a secondary action to keep yourself focused on the painting? Well, that that is a, it's a challenge because finishing a large painting is is a huge challenge I've never had to. Uh, deal with before. I've never done large canvases, but I have one now that's like 10 feet long and four feet high that I did finish. And it's astounding um, that, you know, I'm really proud of it. And I just had another one just sell. I had a, my first canvas sell a few days ago, and it, it's a, also a very large canvas of a snail, a giant snail. How giant? A giant snail that's taken over, uh, basically taken over Paris. What's the size of the canvas? Oh, it's about a four by four. It's pretty damn big. Pretty big. And it's a giant snail with slime. And then there's a crowd of people surrounding it because uh, they're curious. uh, And then also they want to eat our escargot. They're in Paris. So (laughs) it's called escargot. And they're they're pretty excited about the giant snail. So do you you look at any sort of creativity is kind of the same thing coming from the same place, just that it expresses itself through different mediums? Or do you view audio and what you were saying earlier that it's kind of the same thing you, but now that you're working exclusively on painting, do you feel like it's coming from a different place than the audio ideas come from? Or do you feel like it's same place, same thing, just different medium? I think that there are parallels to the visual world and the in the audio world, in that when I'm thinking of ideas for productions, I'm using the same parts of my brain and I'm actually visualizing the sound uh, or the dynamics that I want to create in a recording, in a, in a musical recording. And um, things were uh, more a little more challenging when it was when we, we were working on tape only. But now Pro mm-hmm. Tools, you can visualize the whole thing uh, as waveforms. But I also like visualize, um, you know, density and openness and uh, those types of things in um, creating the audio part of it. I do like dense productions. Are those words that you've always used to describe audio? Is that, I mean, have you always thought this way about audio? Or is this something you develop more recently? Or is it just kind of like a natural thing that just happened? You know, the the whole idea of music production for me was a bit of an accident in that um, I was working on my own music with uh, with my band and I learned how to use the equipment so I would be doing my own work, uh, my own music, and 
the 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 recordings turned out well enough that other people asked me to start um, to work on their uh, their songs too, but I had never had any formal education as far as um, production or engineering even. So I would uh, kind of make it up as I was going along, and that was the mechanism that I would use to to uh, think about uh, production. And I could actually take a, a, a sheet of paper and I could draw the the curve of how a song would start and then mm-hmm. build and then drop and then build, you know, and taper off on the end. And, you know, you, you can actually draw a picture of, of how a song would be laid out and just on a piece of paper. Um, so that's how I, I managed to think about the uh, song production. It's interesting that you say that because um, when I was in high school, I had a uh, I had a music teacher that was brought to the school just for me, so I was the only person in the music class. Uh, it was just a weird deal I worked out with the school, but that was one of the first things she made me do with uh, orchestral pieces was to draw them, uh, like forget notation, forget traditional structures, forget all that, just draw the structure and the dynamics and everything. Uh, and it got me thinking about music in a whole different sort of way. Like it allows you to see the big picture in a, I don't know how to say other than a different sort of deeper way almost than notation itself, I think. It's amazing how important uh, teachers are in, um, in developing your ideas I, I agree. I think uh, without her, my trajectory would have been very, very different. I mean, so you say that you had no formal training in recording, but where did, uh, how did you figure out the technical side? Because that's not, that's not easy stuff. Well, uh, I grew up in a household with a father who is a, a uh, mechanical engineer and a mother who is a, an opera singer. And my father would build stereo equipment and tape recorders for his personal hi-fi system. Um, so I was familiar with what he was, it was kind of like a, a natural thing for me to be interested in those things. And when mm-hmm. I went to, um, to university, I took broadcasting classes and um, got involved in uh, radio production. So I did learn how to use the multi-track recorders in those um, classes. But uh, radio is quite a bit different than music recording. Uh, radio is not necessarily about the music and more about the advertising. So I fell out of love with radio and um, just used those skills, the, the few skills that I did get from broadcast to uh, start recording music. I feel like that would be a really good way to get technical skills under your belt because you can't get distracted by the music. Like All you can do is get the technical part right. And the other thing about radio production is that uh, it's fun to use sound effects and to create sound effects and to think outside of the box as far as uh, creating pictures with sound. So, um, so yeah, it, I think it was a great way to start. And um, I appreciate radio production, but it's definitely not where I needed to be. Yeah, I, I understand. One other question about radio production is did the extreme timetables help you out at all with uh, with developing a workflow for later? Because I know that 
in radio, especially news radio, everything it happens so fast. It's like it's like a it's like a live show, pretty much. Yeah, and I did uh, read news for a while, and yeah, the, you you can time, you know, copy you write copy so it's timed in a uh, to fit in a certain uh, length, like a sixty second commercial or fifteen second spot, you know, and then and then also being handed a work order and saying, okay, here's here's what you're doing tonight and and uh, being able to get that done and out on the air the next day is a, a, a really good way of getting used to the schedule. It's a big part of production, music production, and being a music producer, one of the biggest jobs is to land on the runway and to finish that project on time mm-hmm. and and within budget, if possible, you know. So that I think that that also helped me to to really gain those skills. I actually think that that's one of the things that a lot of up and coming producers or mixers really shoot themselves in the foot with is being able to just get the job done or not, regardless of their talent or skills. That. I feel like that ends up being kind of the the thing that separates a lot of people from who ends up progressing in their career and who doesn't at the end of the day. So many musicians really have a hard time finishing. You know, when they're doing their own productions at home, it's very difficult for them to call it finished. So do you feel like as a producer, it's easier for you because, well, A, because you have a more objective viewpoint on the art itself, but B, because you also have the that deadline, and you know how to deal with deadlines. Yeah, well, I try to help the artist to find the the finish line, you know, because uh, it could go on and on, and sometimes uh, they don't, uh, they can't, they can't see it. Even even when I say, okay, this is done, this is as good as it's going to go, and if you keep working on it, it's it's going to only get worse. It won't get better, you know. Sometimes they they don't believe it, and then they continue, and then you know. Then we back up. It's a it's a lot like mixing too. The uh, uh, mixing, um, oftentimes I'll send a mix, and then we'll get a bunch of notes back, and I'll work on those notes, and then ultimately the finished mix is the first thing that I sent. You know. <laughs> Do you have a way that you approach that? Like, say you're dealing with a very strong-willed and super prolific, amazing artist, uh, but you know who. Contrary to popular belief, is still a human, uh, and you know it's done. They don't know it's done, and you're you're having to convince someone who is like you know an ultra alpha musician that chill. It's great. Do you have a way of communicating that, or just depends on the situation? Well, it does depend on the situation, but typically I, I let the artist make those calls and I follow their lead just because I have to trust that they will know something about their own music that I don't know. But then I'm open to uh, I'm open to continuing something, but I, then I also save everything that uh, so I can get back to uh, where we were before. And I, and I might try to convince them, but I'm not going to push very hard. It's their music, you know. I can't be precious about what I'm doing. Fair enough. I remember once uh, I saw a, uh, this was a long time ago, like 20 years ago or something, Eddie Kramer came to talk at my school and somebody asked him a question along those lines of like, what do you do when like Jimmy Page has a bad idea or something? 
And his answer was just give him enough rope to hang himself with. So don't just let him do it. And who knows? He he might not end up hanging himself. It might be an incredible idea. And you never know with these great artists because they are great. So it would be kind of counterproductive to just shoot them down. So if it's a bad idea, let them find out for themselves. And Now, on the other hand, if we're running out of time and there's an absolute deadline because the money runs out, I'll push and I'll, I'll remind them that there's this pressure, you know. And, and typically, I'll try to create an event that is kind of like a carrot on a stick for the end of the, the project. And what I mean is I'll, um, I'll set aside one day in the session at the end of the session to go do something outrageous and crazy. And then, uh, like, like, let's go to, uh, uh, let's go and record in a subway station or let's, you know, let's, uh, go in a cave or let's, you know, let's record in the back of a, a van driving through San Francisco or something. So just like, I'll make a suggestion of something. We'll, we'll kind of brainstorm on ideas. We'll save that last day for this, this special recording. And then I find that with with that to look forward to, things go smoother. Like guitar players don't get hung up on their guitar sound and, and don't spend, you know, eight hours on getting a sound. Uh, we can we can get into it and get things finished a lot quicker because I think because people are looking forward to this thing on the end of the session. So they're really working towards that and it helps to kind of lubricate everything. It's almost like it it puts a just a subconscious limit on the session adds a structure to it basically adds a structure and then also it's a reward and there's a kind of a joy in that reaching that goal and then having um, this opportunity to do something really crazy whether or not the audio actually is useful in the album in the finished album it doesn't even that's matter. what I was wondering <laughs> yeah it doesn't even really matter it's just more about the about doing it and also, I feel like that probably would end the session on a really memorable uh, shared experience. Oh, my God. And so many times that has happened. Like uh, recently, I worked with a band called Hydroform, and they had a song about pirates, and they wanted a <laughs> cannon sound, right? So uh, I thought, well, on the last day of the session, why don't we go out and we'll blow some shit up? We'll create a cannon sound. By blowing up, uh, we what we did is we went and got a bunch of tannerite and um, put it in a, in a can. And if you know what tannerite is, it's it's explosive. When you shoot into it, it's it, it it's yep. pretty explosive. So we uh, we made an, a huge explosion and recorded it, and it actually worked so well. It sounded just like a cannon shot. So we used it in the song, but. That day of being out in the field blowing up Tannerite was something that none of us will ever forget. And it was, it was a real bonding experience. <laughs> so can I ask you a little bit about what went into actually recording that? So you say you were in a field. Were you at all worried about damaging the mics? Well, I was using an Aston Spirit mic, which is a pretty sturdy mic. It's a British mic. And uh, yeah, there was the opportunity to to hurt some mics, but 
in fact, the, the Aston didn't get damaged at all. And it, and it was down in the barrel with the tannerite when it blew up. So. Oh, wow. I guess it really is sturdy. <laughs> yeah, that's a great mic. That's like uh, something you would put in a commercial or something to advertise how sturdy it is. <laughs> right. Do the artists ever get disappointed if the stuff from those days isn't usable? Or is everyone kind of on the same page that it was such a cool experience that whatever, if it works, it works? Uh, so far, there hasn't been really any disappointments. And the only time when it was kind of sad that we couldn't use it was when we, uh, on a, a project, uh, the band was Machines of Loving Grace, and we had a sacrificial guitar that we started the session with this $50 guitar, and then everyone carved and painted and, you know, uh, did something special to it because it was the sacrificial guitar, and we were planning on the mm -hmm. last day to throw it off a cliff. So uh, it was quite beautifully decorated, and then we dragged a Marshall uh, stack up to the edge of a cliff in Malibu. Uh, it was at a studio called Indigo Ranch, which isn't there anymore. But yeah, we dragged a, the, the whole rig up to the edge of a cliff and got a really long instrument cable and then got a, a, a great feedback tone and threw it off the cliff and recorded it as it was tumbling down. And it was just a cacophony of, you know, uh, of, of noise. And we dragged it back up the hill and uh, recorded that too. And it, dang it, it just we just took didn't the work. it just didn't work. And we tried it everywhere in the album, and it just didn't work. So, but again, it's one of those things we will never ever forget. And actually, that broken guitar is uh, was uh, mounted on a frame, and it uh, and the studio owner put it in the uh, in the control room. I, I mean, I guess that's kind of the deal with experiments is the nature of an experiment is that it might not yield the results you would hope for. Right, or it might yield... Or anything. And it might yield something that you never expected. Mm -hmm. Do you find that experimentation, do you find that it's key for you or it's just something that you have found to be so useful that you like to do it? Well, I love to do it. I find it is useful, but it's not necessary. I mean, there's certain projects where there's just no room for experimentation. But whenever I can schedule it into a, a project, there has to be some elbow room with the budgets to do that. There has to be, you know, the, the client has to be willing. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it when it works, it works fantastic. I guess the reason I was asking is because I feel like I've heard some people say, and I don't agree with them, that you have to always be experimenting. I don't think that that's possible. Like, it's not a practical thing. At least in my experience in life is that, uh, except for when you're super young and there's no real pressure, uh, so you can just experiment all the time, you have to actually, you have to plan for it and make it a point to be able to do it. You can't just can't just do it all the time if you actually have things to finish and pressure and deadlines and budgets and real life, basically. Right, yeah. You, you, uh, if we were experimenting all the time, we'd never get anything done. So, yeah, I think it's important to, to schedule that time for experimenting towards the end 
So you make sure that everything else gets finished. And if you run over, then you eat your day of experimentation. And that's okay. I mean, at least you're getting everything finished. How, uh, how structured is the schedule for you typically on a, on a record or a mix? Like, do you plan it out meticulously in advance or is it kind of like a, a, a suggested schedule that then morphs? Well, I, I consult with the client on the way they like to work before we set up a schedule. But typically, I like to start around noon. I like to end around 10. I don't do all-nighters anymore. I used to do a lot when I worked with Prince. Uh, but that was a, that, that, yeah, that, that'll burn you out. Prince hours. Oh, boy, yeah. That's what I've heard. So, yeah, 10 to, uh, noon to 10, I can start earlier, earlier uh, but I don't like to start earlier than noon. Um, and 10 hours a day is plenty enough if we're going to do uh, work. Uh, we can get a lot done in 10 hours. I think a friend of mine said that noon is 8 a.m. studio time, basically. I agree with him. One interesting thing about all-nighters is, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm curious what your opinion is, is I used to do them when I was younger. I think everyone did. Like anyone who's been super motivated or passionate about making music or art at some point probably had a crazy schedule like that, like 36-hour-long sessions and all that. And then as they grow up, they stop doing it. And for me personally... I'll never do that stuff again because I'm so much more productive when I'm rested. But what I'm wondering is, do you think that when you're in those formative years that it's better to go nuts like that? Because that's kind of, I kind of feel like it's almost like the only way to get to the level you need to be at if you want to be world class. You have to go that distance that a lot of other people won't. And then you can gauge yourself and because you'll recognize just how much you can handle. I realized over so you know over how many years I've been doing this now, 35 years, that if I work more than 10 hours a day, my productivity just falls off after three or four days, and then it then I'll I'll just be completely toast, and it's hard for me to make a, a noon downbeat. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I can do a lot of work. I can get everything done um, if I if I pace myself. I think it's it, it, and it's to the point where I will pull the plug on a session, even if we're being productive, even if we're kind of on a roll. I'll say, look, we got to we got to stop right now um, be, because we need to pace ourselves, and then we pick it up the next day. And and rarely it does it. Uh, uh, you know, rarely do we really lose anything by doing that. And if the if the artist really, really, really wants to keep going, I'll just hand it over to my engineer and just say, here, you, you guys keep working on it until you just knock yourself out. <laughs> so it sounds to me like your priority is keeping yourself in the best mental and uh, physical health to be able to do the job whatever optimum is. And your ears get tired too, and pretty soon yeah, you can't really trust I mean. your ears, sure. Yeah, and then burnout, I feel like I know exactly what you're saying. Like if I go past a certain number of hours multiple days in a row, it's like my ability to care, like whatever that is in my mind that lets me really give a shit about what I'm working on, it just goes away and I just can't. Like I literally can't 
like I do, but not really. And it's because I'm burned out. And don't ever want to get that way on a project. No, no. uh -uh. You want to be 100% for your client. Yeah. So have you ever been in a session and you just like, you realize you're like, I'm not, I'm not really here right now. I need, need to stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's when I, w- I will pull the plug on a, a project. But typically now I, I don't, uh, I just insist on, you know, okay, that's it for today. You just don't even let it get to that point. Yeah, not anymore, no. And, and again, I'll hand it over to the engineer and maybe they'll just stay up all night and, uh, and they'll be all toasty in the morning when I get there. But <laughs> <laughs> sometimes that works. How many years of not so hours did you do? Like at what point at what point did you start pulling down the throttle on those? I'd say, yeah, you know, wow, probably twenty years of of those crazy hours. the uh, The worst was doing work with Prince because he w- would always have you on a, a kind of on a tether and uh, and he would call you day or night and say, "Come down to the studio." Uh, you know, I want to record. It's four o'clock in the morning, you know, uh, or just leave you at the studio not knowing whether they're coming back to do any more recording. You're just kind of on call all the time. And that was very difficult because I had to be 100% all the time. But uh, there was um, it, the lack of communication really hurt. And sometimes I would be just blotto, just like barely there at all during a session. But uh, I'd have to, you know, snap out of it somehow. Yeah, those were hard days. And then there's also, there's there's projects where things are going so well and you don't want to slow things down and you're really kicking ass. And then you take that chance and you're going to burn yourself out. And then, the, then, then there's the decline of productivity that happens. But you, you did get that, you, you got those good nights in. So, you know, it all balances out, I guess. But I, I just, I find, in general, it's a, it's a good rule to just uh, limit it at 10 hours a day. 10 hours is a lot. 10 focused hours is a lot. Yeah, and you have to really concentrate. You're using everything. You're using your ears, you're using your eyes, you're just, and communication skills. You have to be on it and you have to have answers all the time. So yeah, it's exhausting. It can be completely exhausting if you let it. One thing that I realized as I got older is that when I would do insane sessions, maybe when I was super young, I was focused the whole time, but I couldn't honestly say that I was really at my best the entire time. And I started to realize that eight to 10 super focused hours is way more intense than people realize when they think of like 14 hours or 16 hours or 20 hours as a real work day. I think it's definitely a quality versus quantity thing. I mean, the amount you can do in 10 minutes, if it's the right 10 minutes, is could be, you know, life-changing. Yeah, you know, and that's something I, w- I learned working with Rick Rubin too, is that you don't have to actually, you don't have to be in the room the entire time either to make good decisions. In fact, sometimes staying away from it and getting a perspective and listening fresh is the best way to to uh, really uh, know what's going on. Um, 
he would come into sessions like he would give us work to do like I'd be engineering and the and working with the band like System of a Down and uh and he would give us a list of things to do and then we would work on those we wouldn't see him for a while and then he would pop in for a couple hours he'd listen to what we were doing and he'd know immediately what needed to be done and he'd mm-hmm. rattle that off and then we would continue and then we would he, you know then he just let us create and then come back and check again you know so i i i saw that that was important in um how he could have a a fresh perspective every time he walked in the room and and be able to say just what it needed you know i feel like a lot of people who don't understand that have criticized his method like i've heard a lot of uh dumb stuff said about him like lazy or not like not not really doing his job and i always thought that was the dumbest thing cuz the way i always saw it was this is a guy that knows exactly how to pick the right people for the job and he's an excellent team builder and when you have the right team you don't need to micromanage them and his eyes always on the big picture and that to me is amazing. So I, I've always thought that people don't get it. Yeah, you've nailed it because he is a team builder and he'll put the uh, he'll put the right people on a session with the you know, the right drummer with the the right engineer in the right studio, uh, and and then he kind of just lets things happen naturally, and uh, and he also is is uh, just expert at choosing the songs. Mm-hmm. He'll ask for an artist to write, you know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred songs for one album, and then out of those the those. Uh, songs he'll pick the best 24 to record and you can imagine if you have 300 songs to choose from that you're going to pick some really good songs that the whole album is going to be all great songs if there's 25 recorded and you maybe only release 15 or 12 then you've got a whole other record waiting uh for the for the next release you know if you're doing albums like that um, so I thought it was very clever how he would put things together like that. And, um, and obviously his, his track record proves that. Well, you definitely are getting the odds up of creating a great song when you create that many songs. Yeah, because you can, you know, you can combine songs too. You, you can take the chorus of this and the verse of this and, you know, and then you just say, hey, try uh, putting an intro on this and... And uh, you know, do a, a new bridge on this, and and then we've got something really special. I also think that there's this other benefit to that, where it will make the artists uh, less precious about things, because if they have 300 songs, they, I mean, subconsciously, they already have had to part ways with about 275 of them, so they already probably go in there knowing that a lot of stuff's going to get cut. And so I feel like when people write less material, they get more precious about every idea because there's less of them, so they mean a lot more. When they have that many more ideas, I think it's probably a lot easier for the producer to do their job because the musician uh, is maybe a little bit more objective, can never be totally objective, but maybe a little bit more. 
Yeah, you're so right. It's a, it's always a disappointment when you work on a project and they they present you 12 songs and you're going to record 12 songs. Oh, these are the only songs that you have, <laughs> you know. And they're and then the their latest song is the one that they like the most, and it may not be that great of a song. And you're and there's not a whole lot you can do except to send them back to write. Sometimes even when I'm limited with material and I think that there could be better songs, um, we will uh, begin recording, but I'll say at the end of the first night, I'll say, okay, you guys go and write two songs tonight, you know, and they're just like, what? We can't do that. And I'll say, yeah, you can just write something, you know, bring it, bring it to me in the morning. And, you know, maybe 50% of the time what they bring is something so new and and exciting that uh, we wind up recording it and it turns out great. So uh, the pressure is also a good thing. But I like to start with a, a lot of music before a project. It really does help and bring bring up your chances of having um, a great record. I feel like in this day and age, there's no excuse because we all know that every single band has at least one or two or three people in there with a DAW. So there's there's no excuse now, I think. Yeah. Maybe in the 90s or something, they maybe had a few more excuses for not writing that much. But now, especially if they're full-time, why can't they write a lot of songs. It's a, it's the the big problem is finishing. It's like if you get on it, some some artists just get on a song and then they put everything into this song. And they can never say it's finished and they never, you know, move on. Yeah. Do you ever? So I know referencing what you said earlier about how part of the job is sticking the landing. Uh, even if if you are sticking the landing and you saying this is done, do you ever still kind of feel like, yeah, could just keep going? Like deep down inside kind of thing. I like finishing actually. And it, then I, I get used to the sound of it. You know, maybe there was, what what is the saying? The, the, uh, the project is not finished when the ideas run out. There will always be ideas. You have to know when something is finished and let those ideas go because it, it'll just keep going on and on. I do like dense productions, so I'll put as much into it as I can and get away with. But, uh, but yeah, the ideas will continue. I guess that's true. With a, I mean, that is kind of the, the deal with a creative person. Their mind is always going to be creating. So I didn't think about it that way, but you are absolutely right. Why would the person who wrote all that stuff just suddenly turn that off? Right, yeah. It'll, it'll never keep turn going. It off. It, it'll always be going, hopefully. Do you find that uh, that artists are generally appreciative of when you say, this is it? Some artists have a hard time with that. And and again, like like we talked about before, I'll, I'll follow the lead of the, what the artist says. The artist says, absolutely, I, you know, give me one more chance to sing this part. I'll let them do it. And then it may be obvious at that point that, yeah, your voice is gone and we're not going to get anything better out of this part. But, um, but I'll let them find out for themselves. Like, uh, like Kramer said, uh, you know, yep. give them enough rope. That's, that's what I was just thinking. So at the end of the day, it sounds like you still consider it their record. Oh, yeah. 
it's something I had to get used to is, is my ideas. How so? I can't be precious. It's not my music. It's not my album. I'm helping the, the artist to realize their idea. But I don't want to stamp it with my sound without them embracing it. So I'll throw out my ideas. If they, if they don't want to follow my ideas, that's, that's totally fine. It's not my album. It's not my music. I have my own music that I'll, I'll, I'll uh, express myself with. And the paintings. And the paintings, yeah. Do you think that maybe the paintings are that the ones you do in session are also a way to kind of limit whatever side of you that would be that would want to, I guess, uh, take, like not like technical ownership of the song, but like an emotional kind of ownership over the art? Well, incredibly, when I look at some of these paintings, it does bring me right back to the that moment of of the the music in the studio, and the, and uh, as well as when I listen back to that music, I think of those images. So there is a connection there, and that art is is really mine. That's my pure expression. It's frightening to to expose that sometimes. But uh, as far as the music goes, you know, if it's someone else's music, I'm fine to, to have them take ownership of the work that I'm doing on their music. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm really just a conduit for them and their ideas. Is it a, it, you said that that's something you had to kind of learn how to do though. Can you talk about that at all? Like, is it one of those things where, when, I guess in again in more formative years maybe the enthusiasm I mean you're super enthusiastic now but what I mean is uh, is there is it one of those things like when you were in the formative years when this was such a brand new thing the fact that it was brand new and the fact that it was so exciting you couldn't help but get precious about it yeah well you you uh become really enthusiastic, you're collaborating, um, and you have a million ideas. And uh, How do you not get attached? Yeah, it's true. But yeah, so, so there have been times, oh God, uh, there was one time I was working with a really big band, actually. And I won't name them. <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, while they were, while, while they took the night off, I went in the studio and I created all these backing parts. And this is something that I, I, I typically do on projects is I'll write uh, harmonies and uh, backing parts and then I'll record them and then I'll have the singer, if they like the parts, I'll have the singer re-record with their own voices if they like the parts. So I, I did a, an elaborate vocal arrangement for this artist and I played it for him the next day and it was just crickets in the studio <laughs> and I realized, oh my God, they hate it. And uh, yeah, I had to check myself, <laughs> you know, there, there again, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it won't always be accepted and you can't be disappointed when you, when your ideas don't get accepted. You can't be, but I think it's natural to be, at least until you've done it enough to where you like kind of almost desensitize yourself to the disappointment. You have to be able to continue to throw out ideas and continue to be shot down. You have to be ready to um, be rejected. There is a certain amount of rejection that comes when uh, when an artist is uh, 
more interested in their their ideas and doesn't really, you don't click that way all the time. So I'm okay with that. You know, I'll keep throwing out ideas and if they, you know, a few might land and a few might not, but it's okay. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's kind of like with that Rick Rubin write 300 songs thing. I feel like the more ideas you throw out, the less, if you are always throwing out ideas and you make a vocal arrangement and they hate it, well, you've got another idea the next day. Yeah, that didn't prevent me from having more shitty ideas. <laughs> <laughs> what what would you say the ratio is of uh, shitty to pretty good to awesome? I think they're all awesome ideas, but the acceptance <laughs> is maybe uh, fair enough. I think I I think I get uh, uh, 80, 80 to twenty. Uh, 80, they're accepted. 80% is accepted and 20% is rejected. So. Oh, wow. That's a really high, that's a really high ratio, actually. Yeah. I thought when you said 80, 20, you were, it was going to be the other way around. I think that's really high. Yeah. I pick my fights uh, carefully. Do you think that's a big part of knowing how to handle artists uh, is knowing when to pick your fights? Absolutely. And, and uh, you have to, when you when you first meet the the people you're going to be working with, I'll sit in the room with them. We'll start talking about ideas, and I'll look around the room. And if if it's a group of four people, I'll figure out as soon as I can who's the boss. There's always a boss, mm-hmm. and that's the person you need to communicate your ideas to, because they make the decisions. Maybe they maybe it's a democracy. Maybe they all have to say yes to an idea. But there's usually one person that, that uh, carries the most weight, and uh, you, you need to identify them right away. And uh, then, then I'm, I'm always looking at that person and thinking, well, what, what would work for this person? What parts of the songs have they written? You know, if it's rhythm parts, uh, drum parts or something, then I'll throw out ideas that will cater to that, that particular person first and then gain trust. It's all about everyone being able to trust you. And the more they trust you, the more um, they'll consider your ideas. Sometimes if there's an idea that uh, that they don't understand, I'll just say, hey, let's, let's just try it. And if you don't like it, then we'll scrap it. And uh, and But I don't like to waste a lot of time. I like to make sure everything gets done. So it depends. Do you find that, uh, I guess, the more they know your work in advance, the less trust building you have to do? Yes, absolutely. However, I try to get outside of of the um, the genres that are typical for my production style, let's say. Um, if there's a, a choice of of three projects, coming up, I will choose the one that is most unlike the most uh, popular records that I've worked on, let's say. So country swing is something that I haven't done a whole lot of. So I, I've done, a, I did a country swing record last year and I love it. You know, I, I'm trying to get into, I, I always want to keep my feet outside the circle, touch into all other different types of music if I can. And I guess when you're going into uncharted territory, that kind of trust wouldn't necessarily have been built up the way that if you went to 
an artist from the same exact genre that you have like five hits in a row from. Right. And so the, uh, I think I'm good at um, building trust. I think I can do that. In fact, that's one of the better things that I, better qualities that I have is that I can build trust with an artist, no matter what genre. How did uh, you go about it in the earlier days when you had no track record? It was actually working with no pay for a lot of genres that I was unfamiliar with so that I would get to kick around some ideas. And if it worked out, great. If it didn't work out, no one's out of any money on that. So I would um, volunteer myself for certain jobs so that I could get my feet wet in different genres. But yeah, the, the building trust is it's case-by-case case basis on what you have to do to, to get there. I think that I, I have the ability to disarm clients, whereas when you start a project, everyone's a little bit, uh, or everyone's got their guard up a bit. But I'll walk in, and if it's appropriate, I'll just start cursing right away, and I'll... <laughs> Yeah, and, and pretty soon it, it starts loosening up. We, we start having fun right away. Uh, I think we should all have fun and make it something enjoyable and not a, a, a stressful session if possible. I think uh, sometimes artists will bring in the baggage from whatever happened to them last time they were in the studio, and not every producer believes it should be fine. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, I don't think they want it to not be fun, but they don't specifically make enjoying it a priority. And some, you know, there there can be some pretty tyrannical producers and the, I call it studio PTSD. So I feel like sometimes musicians will, they'll have had such a strong experience, whether the album came out great or not, just something that left some sort of a bad mark and they'll come into the new session even though you're a completely different person that maybe they're meeting for the first or second or third time they'll still kind of be a little fearful of that because that's the last thing they experienced which is unfair to you but still the singers are the ones that i believe have the the hardest time with trust and because I was a singer in my own projects and I still do sing, I try to make them feel comfortable with me as soon as possible. And there's ways that I'll, I'll do that when we are doing vocals. I like to have the, the microphone right next to me. If I'm sitting at a console or with the equipment, I'll, I'll sit at the controller and have the microphone sitting right next to me and the singer singing right next to me in the same room. We wear headphones and we have instant communication. There's no glass between us. And that way, there's no, I don't, I think that it helps with the, the fear that uh, singers get when they see mouths moving on the other side of the glass. Judging them. Yeah, they're, they're being judged all the time. And, yeah. they're, and, it, and when they're being judged, it's not just, the the fact that their their instrument is out of tune no it's their actual their self there there's something wrong with them if they can't sing so i feel like i can get um really comfortable with that artist uh by being in the same room and we communicate right away another thing that i'll do is if there's a part that um 
a particular melody that's difficult for the the artist to uh, the singer to um, to get, I'll sing it onto a track, or I'll sing it to them, and I will not use my best voice. I'll make sure that my singing is is a little crackly. It's a little. You know, it'll be in tune, but it'll be a little crackly. It will be... Worse than theirs. Yes, absolutely. And then they, they listen to that and they go, oh, I could do that, you know. <laughs> so... Uh, How did you figure that one out? Well, that was just from years of do- working with singers, yeah. And, it, and, it, and so if I, if I sing a part and record it, except for a few times, <laughs> uh, the, the, the singer really appreciates it. And then, then, uh, then we do those parts and it, and it works out great. Did you, by any chance, learn the hard way when you first tried that by singing it better than the singer and making them even more insecure? Well, I noticed that this was happening with drummers in particular because the same thing goes with drummers. I like to have the the band, uh, if I'm working with a band with a drummer, I like to have the drummer sit aside and not, you know, hit the drums for our mic test. I think it's a big waste of effort for a drummer just to go donk, 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 you know, and wear themselves out with, you know, hitting the kick drum, you know, a half an hour. So typically I'll, ha- I'll say, hey, you know, go sit in the other room and then I'll have the assistant or, or a runner in the session go up there and, and do the, the drum testing while I'm checking mics. Uh, just, I just want to save the, the drummer's um, energy. And, uh, but you get these, these little hot shit, uh, <laughs> assistants or runners and they just start wailing on the drums and they just show off. And then the, the actual drummer comes in the session and is just like, Oh God, you know, so I don't want anyone to do that. I'll, I'll make sure that the, the, whoever's testing the drums absolutely must not play anything fancy don't show off absolutely not and i'm not going to show off either and it seems to help because uh, you know not not everyone that i work with is is uh is you know a fantastic musician they might have good ideas but maybe the execution needs some help and i'll i'll help that uh with the with what i what i can do with recording i feel like uh no matter what level of band you're talking about there's all levels of skill involved from virtuosos to people that you can't believe they're in a big band. Like, how did this happen? You realize that they're the one who has all the connections or somehow they keep the band together. There's some reason for it, but just on a pure musicianship level, you have the whole spectrum. I I think that sometimes people think that once you start working with bigger bands that you stop having some of the the problems that you do with smaller bands of like shitty musicians. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that uh, there's always going to be a wide range of abilities at all levels. Absolutely. And the, yeah, there's a lot of fixing going on. Uh, it's easy to fix uh, a mediocre uh, performance these days. Do you feel like there was always some sort of fixing going on? Well, back in uh, the analog tape days, it was much more difficult. I think there was better musicianship when it was important for for the drummer to be absolutely on time and singers to be on pitch. Yeah, it's it, it was a lot more difficult. You could fix things, but it was a lot more difficult. Uh, you know, I worked with 
Johnny Cash and did his vocals. And this was on analog tape. We did, I, I did a comp from several tracks onto one track where I had to just, you know, copy over just syllables of words to, to complete the performance. And it was a lot of work. And I had to run the vocals, also certain words and certain vowels through uh, Eventide H3000 to adjust the pitch. There were some parts that were so off. And ultimately, it, it worked out. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't that bad a singer. And plus, he, you know, his voice is legend anyway. So I didn't have to do that much repair. But it was important. And, and those... those uh, fixing skills in analog were um, much more primitive, but they did work, you know. Boy, it's so much nicer now. Yeah. Also, though, I got to say, like, back then, it seems to me like maybe the ability to fix things wasn't as advanced, but there was also a whole industry of session musicians. So instead of, uh, you know, fixing the drums on the grid, they'd just change the drummer. Or, and not put the not put the session person's name on, in the liner notes, but still, like I think that I think our uh, our desire to make things as good as possible isn't something that just came about now. But the technology is what allows us to fix people. But I think that in older days, if they weren't up to par, it was more common to just replace them with someone else. There were also other things that you could do to improve performances with bands that uh, were actually really good in in editing. So um, analog tape editing, if we did five or six takes of, of uh, a song on the Tool record, we would take five or six takes of a song. And then I would cut together a master using, you know, verse one out of take two and the first chorus out of take one and the bridge out of the last take, you know, and just assembling it all uh, with a razor blade. And I think because of that, I think of doing modern digital editing differently than someone who didn't have that opportunity to work on tape. So I always think of uh, takes and pieces and takes mm -hmm. uh, instead of trying to punch in something or you know trying to get it or trying to fix something um, that that it exists on another take, but you know just cut that right into there. So I, I do a lot of assembly in Pro Tools now, the same way that I would do it on uh, analog tape. It's just faster. Yeah, and you and it's better. How just out of curiosity, how often do you? Uh get to work with a band where you feel like every single person is firing on all cylinders. Like everybody in the band is awesome at playing, executing. They all work together like like a machine and the writing's incredible. Just literally everything is just awesome. Yeah, there are those bands. They do exist. Yes, they do. One group, was it last year? Maybe it was two years ago. Molotov, there's a, a band from um, Mexico City. Big, big uh, Mexican band, and I did a MTV Unplugged with them where they were playing all acoustic instruments, and we did this huge television performance, and I produced the, the music and the, the stage for that. And those guys just are just killing it all the time. That was a joy to work with them because they're so good. So there are those people out there, you know, they... But a lot, you know, 
everyone's okay though. I, I mean, ultimately, you know, we can make anything work these days. And, I, and it's all about the songs. So if you've got good songs, we'll, we'll fix all the rest. Has that always been your mentality? It's all about the songs and the rest is just means to an end? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's going to be, it starts with the songs. I mean, if you don't have the songs to begin with, then, you know, you can have a really beautiful but empty sounding album. I feel too like uh, if the songs are incredible, it's not that, I don't mean this to say that the mix shouldn't be great, but I feel like it's far less important if the songs are great. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, when they would sit down, they would play a song one time and it was brilliant. And hopefully the mics were set up and recording because... Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, because that first time, you know, it, it, they're probably not going to play it again. And, and the magic of the moment is, is really uh, obvious in, in that, uh, what they did. So, yeah, if you didn't quite get the best sound, that's totally fine because it comes through on the, in the performance. When you approach a production now, knowing that a lot of modern bands don't necessarily even play together when writing, do you try to get that sort of thing happening where, like as default, try to see what magic they can make together? Or is it something where you'll adapt the way you approach it based on how they even exist and operate in the first place? Well, I have to consider how they've, they've done the writing, but I'll try to get them all in the same room. And I like that type of energy and communication that happens with musicians when they're in the same room. I find that, uh, well, it depends on the music because there's some music where you just, it doesn't matter if no one's actually in the same room. Sometimes it's just one artist, one person is making all the, all the music. But when I can, and if there's a group that can feed off of each other when they're performing. I'll put them in the same room, I'll give them headphones and make sure that they're all standing close to each other so they can have that that eye communication and that special communication that happens between musicians. Uh, I'll isolate the the loud uh, amplifiers, the speakers in a separate room. But typically I like to have them all in the same room and including the singer and I'll I'll capture scratch vocals right there in front of the drum kit and uh, uh, the singer being a part of the initial tracking will help the other musicians to really find the dynamics in a song. Like we're doing this for real. Yeah. I feel like uh, one thing that, and I'm a huge fan of modern recording. I, I love technology, but I feel like with every advancement, there's always going to be pros and cons. And I feel like one of the cons to the way things are often done now is that... Uh, has a little bit more of a dentist office kind of feel to it as opposed to we're doing this together for real type of feel. And I think that I think that as opposed to that's just the way things were done because of the technology in a certain era. Now you have to actually make a point to make it a group effort. Well, one thing that it illustrates that is the fact that a lot of music is written with sample instruments. So you're not mm -hmm. actually using an, an acoustic instrument anymore. And I think it's kind of laziness. If, if there is an, a, a, a piano available, use a real piano. If there is a Hammond available, use a real Hammond. Because it's not, it, you know, if you're using someone else's recording, having been sampled, 
it's just kind of takes the life out of it. It just makes everything very generic sounding. I think that's part of it. So yeah, I, I agree that uh, there is a, a clinical kind of feeling to music now. I think that's part of it is that people aren't really creating with acoustic instruments like they have in the past. Yeah, because I think the human tendency is to take the path of least resistance always. That's just what people naturally do. So if uh, if they can just pull up a brass section and they want to hear a brass section on a song, just pull it up and uh, get the piano roll going, That's that's a much more direct path to something that's maybe 80 or 85% as good as the real thing, as opposed to way, way more work uh, to hire the right people, mic them up, have a good arrangement, all that stuff. Yeah, it's right. It's, it, it, the sample instruments are great tools for composition, for mm-hmm. writing the music, but holy cow, if you can get a real horn section... Well, yeah. There's going to be all kinds of uh, crazy things that happen and mistakes that you'll want to keep and new parts that that just come to mind that happen, you know. So so you're limiting yourself, and, and I think that there's a bit of laziness there, too. Of course, it is hard to find a, a horn section now, you know, on that. Especially a good one. Yeah, right. But, wow, uh, there's nothing better than the, the, the real thing. What does a pre-pro look like for you? Because you're saying that, one thing that you'll try to do at the beginning is figure out who's the boss and understand who you're working with. But one thing that uh, we didn't define is what the beginning is. Like, does that mean day one of recording or does that process start way earlier for you? Typically these days, I live in Oregon and oftentimes I'm not in a place where we can get together into for a rehearsal studio Mm-hmm. So I'll ask for uh, recordings to be sent to me uh, from their rehearsals right away so I, we can do a song choice for one thing. Uh, I'll start guiding them with pre-production in uh, the month in front of a session. I might have them write some new songs, but we'll choose the songs. And it is very difficult to know exactly what's going on with parts being played long distance. So it's not until we're in the same room when, when it's wherever we're at, if we're in L.A. recording or in Europe or at my place or whatever. But uh, once we get in the same room together, I'll listen to these same songs, the song choices. And if there's re- a lot of work to be done on the, uh, the drum parts or uh, they need to write a new uh, bridge or something that we didn't catch before, then I'll, I'll, I'll give them time to do that in front of um, the actual recording. But typically, if we're in pre-production, let's say, I'm gonna have every mic set up, it'll be in the studio, we'll be recording everything in pre-production as it would be when we're tracking. So if there are magic moments. Which there will be. And there will be, of course, especially when there's a song that's fresh, new parts that are fresh. And um, they're just learning it for the first time. There's there's an energy there that you just can't get by rehearsing the the life out of it. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I was taught early on, but then thankfully one of the first awesome producers I worked with changed that for me, was that pre-pro didn't matter. And it ended up, I learned the hard way because I ended up with lots of situations like with my own music where I have a really shitty sounding 
great part on a demo, uh, like played in a way that could never be recreated or a set of effects that just were special, but they sounded like shit um, in, in a way that was not acceptable, not like cool shit. It was just sad because there was no way to ever do it better. And uh, then I was taught to take pre-pro just as seriously as the real thing because because of those moments. Yeah. Because they're only going to happen once. And then there's the the sad thing where uh, you're hired to produce an album where the demos were recorded in so well that it's going to be hard to beat what they already mm-hmm. have because you know the uh what I love is when someone sends me demos and they're just like just the most horrible sounding demos you know I can hear the song I can hear the parts but but uh I you know it's not something that I'm going to have to really work to convince them that this is a better recording than they've already done on their own is that something that happens a lot more these days now that everybody's got pro tools well surprisingly no I mean, people may, might have Pro Tools, but they're not they're they're not recording really well. <laughs> so, what was the scenario where this would happen? Would people go to like a pre pro studio or something? Sometimes their uh, recordings are really good, and they've really worked on them. Let's say they they've been working on an album for six months to a year, and they've been working and working and working on this particular song, and they got all these parts, and they re-recorded them five times, and it's a demo, but it really is more than a demo. It's really something that's finished. Now now I have a week to make something as good as that. You know, that's that's a challenge. And so I try not to fight it and I'll actually import parts from their demos if it if there's a solo that just can't be recreated. And everyone is so attached and they've been listening to this demo for a year uh, and uh, you, they can't get beyond what's on the demo, then I'll I'll import their parts. And we'll work off of their parts, and we'll embellish that. See, what, that same producer who taught me to take pre-pro seriously was also the first person I saw doing that, taking demo parts and using them. And uh, I remembered that uh, before that, I had been around bands who thought that if I had the inclination to do that, that I was trying to get out of doing work, and it pissed me off because uh, in reality, I felt like, there was no reason to do it. When something's already great, why fuck with it? It's already great. Would uh, would you ever get any pushback from artists about just using something from the demo just because they, you know, like I feel like sometimes people don't feel right unless they're doing work. Whether or not the work is productive or unproductive, like they need to feel like they did something in order to feel good about it. Yeah, some artists uh, appreciate the fact that the work that they did before is being used on the album and that that we're just taking it and incorporating it into the final. Some, like you say, are more interested in um, trying to improve it for some reason. And then I'll let them. Uh, we'll take time. If we have time, we're going to take time and we're going to try. And maybe they beat it. But typically, there's the, it's it's really hard to beat some of those early recordings and a new song. I wonder sometimes if they've been working on a song for six months and they've re-recorded it five times, what do they think is going to happen on the sixth? Yeah, right. When something is so ingrained in someone's head, their demo, you know, it's hard to hear them any other way. 
One thing that I'll, I'll be very, very careful to do is to match the tempo of their demo. And then that helps. If you, you know, if you vary the tempo suddenly, it doesn't sound right. So the t- we start with, if we're going to re-record it, we, we have to start at that exact tempo. And when you're getting presented with a song that's that far in, does your focus then become more about just the best sounding recording possible rather than taking a creative role in the song? Well, I will make sure that I get everything that they've created in that song up to that point and then add more and and cross my fingers. Uh, it's uh, sometimes a challenge. Sometimes I'll, I'll even match the sounds as close as I can to the demos. And this is something that I'll do with mixes too. And there's an artist that will send me uh, an album to mix. And I always ask for rough mixes before, before I start because I want to see where they've... Uh, what they are expecting from the the, the song, the music, mm. uh, from the mix. And uh, there have been those projects where the uh, the mix is so good that I'm just I'm just trying to beat their mix, you know, and I'll I'll get there, but um, sometimes I wonder if they're if they're not just using me just to stick my name on there mix, you know, on their mix, because um, because what they've done is already finished. They don't really need me, but they, they need my name, maybe. You're not the only person who I've heard say that. I've been in the room with certain mixers where they get the, the rough, and they're like, what exactly do you need me for? This sounds great. Like, I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job, but... Uh, Really, this is awesome. Why are we redoing it? Yeah, there's there's that, and uh, I'll I'll play the game. You know, sure. Well, I mean, why talk yourself out of a job? <laughs> right. I guess though, when it is that good, do you ever run into the situation where maybe maybe not that it's not possible to beat, but that it is so good coming in that the artist has a really really hard time. Uh, accepting it differently. Not exactly the same thing as demo-itis where they get used to a part, but more like uh, they had the final mix already. They just didn't know it was the final in their mind. Like they had attached themselves to it as though it was the final. And then you're kind of dealing with that. Yeah, there's a... Recently I worked with a really young artist who has only known working on a DAW in their... basically in their bedroom. Mm -hmm. The new way creating amazing songs. And the mix was good, but it was very thin sounding, like they didn't have real quality monitors in their their little home studio. So I tried to match as much as I could their, uh, their mix. And I added a few little sparkles of things, you know, some extra uh, throws, some delay throws and some uh, I added an extra synth part because it was really kind of wide open, which is a style. But I, I kind of had a feeling that this wasn't going to, that they're, they're not going to want to do anything except what they did. You know, they don't want to hear anything but what they did on their own, which I can't blame them. And ultimately, I didn't get the, uh, the mix job 
basically. They they went with the original mix. And that's okay. I mean, you know, uh, especially for a young artists that, that are really intense into their work that let them, you know, let them go all the way with their, um, with their music and finalize that vision. And I know that kid is going to be great in, in 10 years. Oh my God, this, you know, we'll probably hear all about him. Like one of those people that does everything themselves start to finish one of those freaks. Billie Eilish uh, and and her brother kind of thing. They are incredible, aren't they? It's so weird to me that there's like a, I feel like there's this contingent of people uh, who want to tear them down. And I don't understand because I feel like they're two of the most talented kids to have come around in music in ages. Like everything they're doing is so fresh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the uh, even at the uh, the convention, the Democratic convention, uh, Billie Eilish sang a song called "I'm in Love with My Future," and I thought it was freaking great. You know, these uh, young artists that really have great ideas, and they're they're doing it on their own. And it whereas I I kind of want to look at them and say, hey, well, why don't you need me? It doesn't matter. It's like let them let them uh, be in love with their future. Well, I mean, haven't there always been artists that are kind of able to do it all? Like, I mean, like I think of Trent Reznor. I know that he's always had his partner, but it's always pretty much been Trent and Atticus, right, the entire time. So I feel like there's always been those artists that are just a kind of a self-contained unit almost. Yeah. I think there will always be a need for producers and mixers but at the same time, there's always going to be artists who just don't need anyone. Just the nature of the game. But wasn't the Billie Eilish record, the most recent one, mixed by somebody awesome? Oh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that it was. Uh, but though he did say that he barely had to do anything, that the tracks that Phineas created were so good that like he just had to balance them a little and do whatever. But it wasn't like it wasn't like surgery or anything like that. It already sounded amazing, apparently. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, me neither. So I have a few questions here from our listeners, if you don't mind me asking you. George Lever, who is actually a really awesome producer out of England, says, if you had to start from scratch in 2020, what would your first decisions be? Start from scratch. Hmm. I think that every every production that I do uh, in um, in the studio, I would have a video component to. I want to have video mm-hmm. connected to everything that I do. So that the visual, I think, is is more important than ever in um, in creating music today, <laughs> which seems odd, but yeah, the visual component I think is is more important than ever. You know, it's interesting you say that because um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately where the, and I feel like this is true for musicians or producers or really anybody in music uh, on the creative side of it. I feel like at one point in time, it was just you did, the job requirement was that you did your job. Um, like if you're a guitar player, just be a really awesome guitar player who can hang. 
then uh, somewhere in the past 15 years, uh, it's almost a requirement to have a basic ability to use a DAW, not to be professionally amazing, but like to be able to get your ideas down enough to be able to to communicate with uh, with other musicians who do use DAWs or aren't local, because I think bands aren't necessarily local anymore um, the way that they used to be. And then I feel like the the landscape shifted again to where now being able to record a little and just being able to play your instrument are assumed. And the new thing that everyone needs to have at least a basic working knowledge of is video. So I actually, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and uh, inviting people into your world um, through um, webcasts is uh, is going to be a part of everything that I do. I, I'm pretty sure that that's, that's what the future holds, uh, as well as for what I have actually planned to launch this fall, which will be in 2021, is a, a Dolby Atmos mixing which I'm super stoked about. So I'm going to be doing immersive mixing here and for music. And uh, that, in my creative way, is going to be an expression of, of um, a new way of expressing these mixes with some of these artists that, uh, that uh, I've been working with, especially electronic artists, where I can place objects everywhere in the room and have this entire experience, listening experience, which I'm super stoked about. It's uh, including your seat too, right? Oh, the vibration in the seat? Yeah. No, I don't have that, but uh, I do have like a 9.2.4 system being uh, installed now with wow. with the four above and uh, all Genelec monitors and uh, just, it's just outrageous. So it'll be... Uh, it's going to be a great year. Next year is going to be a great year. I feel like uh, Dolby Atmos is the one thing, as far as movies go, that really makes going to a movie still worth it. Right. Like seeing a Chris Nolan movie in an Atmos theater, like just that experience is unbelievable. I, I feel like I would love to hear what music sounds like. Through, through that. I mean, it, it could be novel and maybe the novel novelty will wear off after a little while. But honestly, I think that uh, it's going to be, at least for some of the music that I'm, I'm working on, I think it's going to be just bring it up to a new level. Awesome. I'm, I'm excited to hear what that sounds like. A huge fan of Dolby Atmos. So Alex Estrada says... I would love to hear more about the microphone museum project she's been working on. Oh, wow. Yeah, my partner Chris and I purchased a museum. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. I'm, I, I've been collecting mics f for my entire career, and I have some really nice vintage mics, uh, but we, uh, we were tasked with writing a, a book for Hal Leonard on um, vintage microphones. And during that writing process, I met a, an old gentleman in Milwaukee who had his own microphone museum. And that was Bob Paquette. And through a series of events, we wound up buying his, his museum. He passed 
and we wound up buying the museum. So now all these mics are here in this new studio that we're building, and it's called the Museum Studio because it's basically in a museum with 2,000 vintage mics from uh, all the early uh, American mics, which I was not as familiar with as uh, the German, the, the, uh, the imports, which are, you know, the German mics are fabulous. Well, there are also really amazing American condensers that are kind of overlooked, but are as equally as, um, as uh, wonderful and useful uh, for recording. We have the range of microphones from the very first from 1876 and 1878, which are the first uh, carbon, the liquid and carbon mics um, from Bell and from Hughes, all the way through um, the 20s when there was an explosion of new technology when the dynamic mics were, were developed and um, the condensers were developed and the crystals were developed. And um, we have the full range from the earliest to uh, the later mics. I'd say no new technology has been made in microphone building since the 80s. I think it kind of maybe even the 60s because there was phantom-powered condensers that came in in late 50s and 60s, and then pretty much things stopped uh, advancing. There, there hasn't been any real new technology since the 60s, since all the manufacturing uh, went offshore and it went to Asia, and then things haven't really changed since then. But yeah, this this microphone museum is um, is astounding, and I still can't believe it. And uh, I'll be starting a little web series called Mike Du Jour, and I'll take one at a time and describe them, talk about the the technical details of them, and then plug it in, and we'll listen to it uh, one at a time, one you know one every day or one every week, depending on how many of these I can do. Uh, but uh, th this uh, series will go on for years because there's just so, so many mics. <laughs> How do you plug in a mic from 1878? Well, surprisingly, um, the 1878 mic that we have is a carbon pencil made by David Edward Hughes. And it has two posts on the ends of the carbon pencil. And the carbon pencil is basically a burnt stick that's compressed and it's hard. And if you run a current through it, which is a basically a six volt DC from a battery, uh, and then you talk into it, the uh, variable resistance is translated through the wire, through the electric wire, and then it, and it's um, then translated into a little speaker, a little earphone that you can hear. So you can have a wire traveling from one room to another and talk into this basically a burnt stick. And you can hear it on the other end. And I had no idea that that was like, that's the first carbon microphone. And carbon microphones, you'll, you'll recognize that every telephone has a carbon microphone or the, you know, anything up to through the early nineties, landline phones usually had a carbon button in the mouthpiece. And those carbon uh, mics had a, a granulated version of this carbon technology. But uh, the earliest one was a stick. And then the other crazy thing is that crystal mics 
which there's a popular crystal mics by a static, the JT30, which is a, the bullet that harmonica players use all the time. They, that has generally has a crystal element in it. And crystal mics were similar in that here you're not yelling at a stick, but you're yelling at a rock, basically. <laughs> it's a slice of crystal, a very thin wafer slice of crystal with a diaphragm touching one end of it. And as the diaphragm moves with sound, it bends the crystal. And the crystal, when it's bent, puts out a little charge. And then that charge is read as uh, audio signal. And, and, you know, it's piezoelectricity, piezoelectric signal. So I had no idea. You know, you, you can grow these crystals. They're, they're basically originally salt crystals that were grown. How did somebody figure this out? I know. With the brushes, the, the brush, the father and son um, uh, brushes in their laboratory, they figured this out. And piezoelectricity is, you know, in useful in other ways too. But yeah, you yell at a rock and you get a mic. <laughs> you yell at a stick. Did you know this? I, I had no idea. I didn't actually. Um, I'm hearing this for the first time. Part of what amazes me too is the fact that the stick Mike was preserved. It sounds fragile. Yeah, we have it, <laughs> and the the actually the carbon is pretty tough. It's pretty hard. It's almost like a rock, but it's it's oh, really okay. just burnt and compressed. The some people call them coal mics because basically it's like a chunk of coal. Just blows my mind that people figured this out at some point in time. That me too. And since we got this uh, collection, this museum in December. I've taken each mic one at a time and studied each one and documented what it is and um, the technology behind it. And I've learned so much and I'm not even finished uh, with the documentation yet. And so we had to put off releasing this book for a while because there's all this new technology that came in and it will be a very important uh, book on vintage microphones that will cover uh, more than just your your telefunkins and your AKGs and you know the uh, it's going to really show the history and technology of microphone building right from the beginning. Did I read this correctly that you have around two thousand microphones? Yes, there's more than two thousand mics, vintage mics. So that. It's definitely going to take a while to, to get through the video series. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to start, you know. Uh, there's, it's, it's hard to choose what mic to do first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right here I'm using for this recording today, I'm using a, a little old Sennheiser MD-21, which is, it looks like the MD-421. Uh, Can you see it? Mm -hmm. But it's smaller and it's made of metal. And uh, it sounds great, though. I mean, it, the, this is a, a great mic, and I bought this for $50 in Berlin. You can find these mics. They're fantastic mics. Uh, so that's another reason why I, I want to share the knowledge about these vintage mics, because there's good quality mics to be found that you wouldn't even expect would be high-quality uh, production mics. That aren't $15,000. Yeah. So, all right, last question. This one is from Runar Magnuson, and he says, I remember a story from a DVD of one of my favorite Norwegian bands from the 90s that you produced. The band's name is pronounced Simon. Uh, 
where you had the singer run outside before a vocal take. His heavy breathing is a big part of the song and it wasn't planned. How do you know when to push artists and have them do things like that? Has it ever backfired and made people angry? Yeah, it has backfired, but sometimes it doesn't help to make a singer comfortable. Let's say you're doing music that's angry. You want to have the singer with a with that anger, true anger in their voice, well, then you just have to piss them off somehow. Apologize later. Exactly. After you get your part, you have to get your take. But sending them outside to run around in the snow is one way of pissing off a singer and getting them to scream when they come back in and, and you know, with the, with the real, the genuine emotion. You know, man, manipulating a singer like that does backfire. Sometimes I had Serge from System of a Down hanging upside down. When I was uh, doing vocals with him once, I thought this would be a good way to get a, a special performance. And and he started screaming, at, you know, because the, there was a part in the song where he was supposed to scream. And his face got really red and his eyes started bulging out. And it was just like, oh, no, no, no. You have to stop. We're not going to do this. So I don't want to kill anybody. <laughs> but, yeah, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, like we said, that's, that is what experimentation is, like. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's right. Well, Sylvia, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Sure, am. Thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for doing this. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the Dolby Atmos stuff, for sure. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.